0: Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crang. All right, thank you for joining us on American Potential. Appreciate you following through the, the podcast is growing at a, at a great uh, pace, and we're we're excited about it. We've got some new features we think are going to be coming out soon that I think you're going to find fun as well but thank you for all you're you're doing to help us grow i i want to mention if you haven't done this yet we'd love to have you leave a five-star review on itunes or spotify or whatever podcast platform you use for this podcast we already have over 600 five-star reviews on itunes and almost 800 five-star reviews on spotify and again we've been doing this podcast for two months so. Thank you for uh, responding to the podcast and for, for continuing to, to, to help us grow and give us those reviews. That's, that's great. It really does help us uh, grow and, and makes more people hear this great message of people who are empowering themselves and breaking these government barriers. You know, I, today we've got a great show. I, I want to talk about the congressional budget process. I know you're thinking... <sighs> Wait, wake me up when this is going to get exciting. It's going to get exciting. It's going to get exciting. What do you think of when someone says a congressional budget? What do you think of? Do you think about the news coverage around Christmas? It seems like every single year around Christmas time where the the news is saying, "Hey, if Congress doesn't pass a budget, the government's going to shut down." Do you think of the media talking about all the Americans uh, who won't be able to go to national parks and the millions of Americans who won't get their social security checks. Or do you think about all the wasteful spending that goes on in Washington? Well, looking past all the catchy headlines, do you really understand how the congressional budget process works and, and wonder if there's a better way for Congress to pass a budget? There is a better way. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Americans for Prosperity, Vice President of Government Affairs, Akash Choghali, to talk about why Congress should have a real budget. He'll explain what that means and how it is benefiting so many other states that already use that type of budgeting. Akash, thanks for being with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. Great to talk to you. So first of all, let's talk about a real budget and what, what does that mean to have a real budget?
1: So a real budget is basically a budget that actually encompasses everything that goes into a budget, all of the revenue, all the spending, the tax credits, every dollar that comes in and out of the federal government should be part of the budget. Now that seems pretty common sense. You would think that that's how government currently operates. Um, but that would be incorrect at the federal level. Some states do this, right? And it's just one bill that has everything in it. Um, but the federal government is nowhere near anything like that. The federal government has, you know, folks might have heard of mandatory spending, discretionary right. spending. There's tax expenditures. There's, you know, things like that. So um, how things are split up doesn't really make any sense if you're, you know, an average American taxpayer who. Um, doesn't like paying taxes, but to the extent that you do, you want to make sure it's going towards good things, and um, you know priorities are pitted against one another, and, and they're using your dollars responsibly. The absence of a real budget prevents that from being the case. So, I mean, we see these
0: stories, and it, it, I know it frustrates the American people. You know, Congress puts off their budgeting processes. You talked about some of its discretionary spending and much of its mandatory, and you know, there's not much they, do, they can do about that. But the, but the discretionary spending piece they put off to the last minute. We have these omnibus spending bills and the, the, the Christmas tree bill, right, uh, which everybody talks about, where they just start throwing in stuff. They hide it in it. Uh, the old Nancy Pelosi phrase of we'll have to pass the bill so we can find out what's in it. Um, I think the American people are tired of that. How, and, and that's all because of the, the broken process, correct?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the way it's supposed to work right now is that on the discretionary side only. So maybe let's make that sort of distinction before we go any further. Right. Discretionary is almost everything you think of that government does. The other part is what's called mandatory spending. And what lives in mandatory spending largely are entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, Obamacare, and then the other mandatory program uh, is interest on the debt, which we'll, we'll get into in a second, and is getting much worse. Right. That mandatory spending, which is just a small handful of programs, plus the interest, encompasses more than two-thirds of all federal spending. Is just in that small handful of programs. Everything else is in the discretionary budget, and that's things like defense, transportation, education. Literally everything else the federal government does is in discretionary, but it only accounts for about one-third of all spending. That one third is supposed to go through this annual budget process, budget and appropriations. The way it's supposed to function is it's actually split up into 12 different bills, right? There are 12 different appropriations bills for this annual discretionary budget. The problem is that Congress has not actually followed through on all 12 of those, uh, those bills in 25 years. What they end up doing, because they can't do that simple responsibility of the, following the current budget process, is at the end of the year, you get into what's called this omnibus situation, where they ram all of them together or a bunch of them all together, and it becomes, like you said, this Christmas tree thing, where people are jamming in whatever they want for their district, wasteful pet projects, um, you know, poor uses of taxpayer dollars, corporate giveaways. Nobody reads the bill. Everyone's eager to get out for Christmas. It's like a three thousand page bill, and that's how we fund the government every year on the discretionary side. So clearly. That's a process that no one should be happy with. That you know, the simple fact that they can't follow the law as it's currently written, and that's what it results in.
0: Yeah, and it, you know, it doesn't allow a lot of even input from members of Congress. I worked on Capitol Hill, so I kind of know what the the process is. But most Americans don't understand, too, right? These bills are being written by by committee chairmen by their staffs. I mean, most members of Congress don't really even have a say in these thirteen appropriations bills currently, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that's part of the benefit of a real budget. What ends up happening is this sort of year-end omnibus, or if we get to what are called these shutdown situations, right, where either we fund the government or the government shuts down and they pass what's called a continuing resolution. Those are basically drafted behind closed doors by members of House or Senate leadership and the two relevant committees, and that's it. One of the benefits of what we're talking about this real budget um, is that all the authorizing committees, right, and every congressional committee has some authorizing authority over different programs, they should all have a say in this, right, so that every member of Congress has a say in, you know, how government prioritizes, how much is spent, what we shouldn't be spending on. Um, That's just one of the benefits, is not only is it going to make us more fiscally responsible, a more transparent process, a more accountable process for the American people, but it actually allows the representatives of the American people to have a say in the matter you know, if they're not represented by the Speaker of the House or the chairman of one committee on, on either side.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about a real budget. I mean, explain what this means. I want to get into some of the states that already do it, but we'll, do, we'll save that for a minute. Explain what a real budget would mean to Washington, how it would work, uh, and how it would change things.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would basically be similar to how many organizations and, like you said, many states already do. All spending and all revenue should be included in your budget. What that allows, you know, what that allows to take place is, like I said, priorities are pitted against each other. So right now, on the mandatory side, you have Medicare, Medicaid programs like this growing exponentially with zero debate, zero, uh, you know, accountability. Essentially, never a question of, of reforming these programs. They're growing exponentially. They're never competing against things on the discretionary side, right? People might think. Our defense budget is growing too fast or we spend too much on education at the federal level or whatever the case might be. These programs are never forced to compete against one another. A real budget would make that the case. Like I said, it'd be member driven, committee driven. It would be a much more dispersed process as far as what the inputs are and sort of making these things compete against one another so that we're not in the situation where you just have the appropriations committee and leadership writing it behind closed doors. And as you said, ramming it down the throats of more than 450 other members of Congress on, you know, at least on the House side and then obviously on the Senate side as well.
0: Right. What are some of the state? I mean, there are states right now that do this and that do a much better job than the federal government does at budgeting. What are some of the states and what's what's the outcome that they've seen?
1: Yeah. So South Carolina and North Carolina are two that come to mind. There's, I believe, close to a dozen or so that do some version of this, whether it's just one bill or it's just one or two. Um, you know, instead of several, the way the federal level does it. Um, but you've got a couple benefits. Like I mentioned, one, way more transparent, way more accountable, way more understandable for citizens as far as how trade-off decisions are made. And ultimately what that results in is greater fiscal responsibility. And as you and I know, the outcome of greater fiscal responsibility ultimately, and I think this is a really key point of why all this matters, is you have a more prosperous economy, right? You right. rein in government it creates more prosperity, more economic growth. And you and I know the, the great things that come of that, right? We're better able to lift people up when government is playing its proper role, when it's limited and it's allowing the private sector to thrive. That's one of the long term benefits of responsible budgeting uh, in government.
0: Yeah. And Akash, I, I think, you know, as people see this, that, that's the one thing that they just don't see that Congress right now, under the system we have, can prioritize. They don't. They don't seem capable of prioritizing. They just seem to say, well, you know, we spent this much last year, so we're going to increase it by 3% or 4% or whatever. But there isn't a holistic approach and look at the budgeting process. And that's what's really gotten us, you know, on the edge of the fiscal cliff right now. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. You mentioned it's sort of on autopilot, right? From one year to the next, it just goes up and up and up and up. Uh, And that's one of the other things we're trying to solve. We talked about the real budget. One of the other things we want to do is to use better budget targets, right? What are they basing it off of as a starting point? What are they trying to accomplish? Uh, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana and Congressman Tom Emmer from uh, Minnesota, they've introduced a bill called the Responsible Budget Targets Act. What that would do is it would create a gradual transition to structural balance in federal budgeting so that you know we have much needed stability over fifteen years, right? So balancing the federal budget, excluding interest costs, within fifteen years gives them more incentive to to save for rainy days, eliminate some of that instability that comes with you know fluctuating revenues and all of that. Um, whereas right now, as you mentioned, we sort of have the situation where based on last year we spend X amount more, and we spend more and more, we get into then these emergency, you know, sort of emergencies where. Spending is just piled out on, on top of that. Um, using the sort of longer time horizon through better budget targets would improve upon that again over the long term.
0: This also would give members, I think, members of Congress, m- and, and of course, thereby representing their constituents and their constituents more control. But it would give them more control over going down and really challenging spending in the budget. Um, when when I worked in the House of Representatives. You know, most of the appropriations bills were brought up under something called an open rule, where members could go down and offer amendments. But you know, member, most members, I think, didn't do that. uh, Either just kind of trusted the chair uh, that put the bill together. But I think that's this would really help empower members to look at that and say, you know, I'm I'm not sure that we're you know spending this much money on say the National Endowment for the Arts or something. Uh, is a good idea and could go down and offer an amendment to get that removed rather than just having to vote up or down on the bill itself. This would help empower individual members of Congress to be more involved in that process.
1: Yeah, I I cannot stress how important that is. And and Jeff, you and I both worked in Congress, worked in the House, and we've kind of seen that that muscle memory is disappearing. If you feel like you have no say in the matter, you might sort of care in the abstract, right? You go back to your district and you talk about how we spend way too much on the National Endowment for the Arts or National Public Radio, or we need to reform Medicare, Medicaid, which are obviously good things that you should be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but your ability to do it, and, and because your ability is is constrained, your interest in actually spending time to work towards something like that is limited. And so that's why we've come to this inertia where nobody wants to reform our entitlement programs. Right. We never cut spending with, you know, with very few exceptions. Um, The open rules, one of the things that can change that. Now, you might remember, listeners might remember, we just had a debate that was related to this right at the very beginning of the year with the Speaker of the House. If folks remember, it took Kevin McCarthy, I think, 14 rounds of voting to become Speaker. One of the reforms that that group that was objecting to his speakership wanted and eventually came around to make what I think is a very good deal, um, was to allow for more of these open rules, right? Allow rank and file members to have more say in amendments, allow more amendments to be voted on, um, You know, where you actually have the entire House of Representatives having debate, voting on ideas in the process of making laws, right? That's how everyone remembers a schoolhouse rock version of how a bill becomes a law. That's kind of how it's meant to be done. It just hasn't been done like that in a very, very long time and it's important that members of Congress, one, have that muscle memory and then two, have the incentive to be engaged and involved in making laws, reforming laws, making changes. Um, And I think there's no issue where that's more important than federal spending, which as we've seen, has been out of control for a long time, but has gotten much, much worse over the last few years.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned uh, mentioned, um, kind of entitlement reform. I think so often politicians talk about, oh, this person, this political party is going to cut Entitlements, or they're going to do this or that on entitlements, and it's sort of political demagoguery. But the fact of the matter is, this process that we currently have plays into uh, not being able to reform entitlements. And you know, we had we had welfare reform when Bill Clinton was president, and there was a Republican Congress, and there was welfare reform. But it seems like the system we have now never wants to reform anything. It's just kind of on autopilot. They don't talk about it. They don't ever make any changes. And if we're going to save, you know, if we're going to have social security and Medicare and Medicaid around for a period of time, we do have to reform and update those so that we're getting the, the best deal for the taxpayers. Isn't that what this is about?
1: That, that's exactly right. And I'm so glad you brought this up. This is the, I think maybe the thing I was most looking forward to talking about with you Right? are these entitlement programs. And the thing is, Nobody wants to, you know, throw old people off a cliff, if you remember that analogy. Um, But here's the thing. Anybody who is not advocating to reform these programs is advocating for cuts to the programs. Right. Let me repeat that. Anybody who is not trying to reform these programs is currently advocating for cuts to the programs. And here's why that is, Jeff. Both Medicare and Social Security have automatic cuts already written into the law which will take place in the next 10 years because of their fiscal situation, Mm -hmm. because of their insolvency coming at us. Both of those programs will see cuts baked into current law go into effect in the next 10 years if nothing is done. And so for all this fear mongering about what's going to happen to senior citizens, the best way to make sure that they get hurt and their benefits get cut is to do nothing. So what that means is we do have to engage in a constructive conversation, frankly, has to be a bipartisan conversation about what reforming those programs looks like. One of the things we're trying to do, uh, or one of the bills that we're supporting is a bill called the TRUST Act. And TRUST is an analogy. It stands for Time to Rescue United States Trusts, TRUST Act, um, that would create bipartisan, bicameral committees for each of these major endangered, endangered trust funds, right? Medicare, Social Security, even the Highway Trust Fund. These commissions could create recommendations. They would be fast-tracked to the floor to be voted on. Um, what that would do is it would ensure that you have bipartisan, bicameral buy-in to reform these programs, improve their solvency. Now this might sound like a radical idea, but a bill that was, substan- or an idea that was substantially similar to this was voted on actually two years ago in the Senate and received 71 votes. And so there is bipartisan support for this idea. Every member of Congress realizes that these programs need reform. They just don't have the courage to do it under the current arrangement. We think the Trust Act is a great way to do what must be done here in very short order.
0: Well, and I think another great example of that, and I mentioned it earlier, is, is welfare reform. You know, it was only after, you know, Bill Clinton came in, was president. Uh, Republicans took control of Congress and he realized that he had to, he had to sort of change tact, political tact and decided he was going to negotiate on welfare reform with Republicans. And that took the political bludgeon away, right? Neither side could wanted to use it as a weapon to, to say that you were against, you know, poor people or you're, you, you know, you, you, what, whatever the, the phrase was back then. And so once that political bludgeon was gone The president and and the Congress, the the Republican majority, particularly in the House, were able to reform welfare And, and they came together to do this. And it can work that very same way if people will stop using these issues as political weapons.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's the most recent example that people remember. Um, but there are actually several examples of this going back in what's now probably considered ancient history, the (laughs) early nineties, the eighties, I'm pretty sure even going back to the fifties. Um, and, and what the trend is that every time there's sort of a hammer hanging over the heads of Congress, then, and only then do they actually get to a situation where they make a deal. And those deals are almost always bipartisan. And so the idea that you're going to have unified single party government control, um, fix these programs is simply not the case, right? Because as you mentioned, then the other side can use it as a political weapon, which I think is an unfortunate reality of the situation that we're in. Um, but it really does take a sort of needed urgency and a bipartisan consensus to do something. Now, I think the Trust Act is a great vehicle to create that situation for for bipartisan, bicameral agreement. Um, unfortunately, maybe it's going to take a couple more years for that urgency to really set in when um, you know, like I said, cuts are are very, very near, but I think the number one thing we can do right now is make sure that people know that if you are for maintaining the status quo on entitlements, you are for cuts to entitlements. Yeah. if you don't want to do anything, you're for cuts that're going to hurt seniors. The only way to protect seniors or people who are near retirement age is to reform these programs. That's the single right. most important thing people need to know about our federal budget
0: well, i mean the, these particularly these. Mandatory spending programs are 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 headed off the cliff. I mean, their trajectory will take them off the fiscal cliff. And as you said, these cuts these cuts will happen. Talk about you mentioned it, but unfunded liability, right? And the unfunded liability of Social Security, of Medicare, of these these different t- trust funds that have been set up. And uh, want to talk about that. And then again, go back to how a real budget would help solve for this problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The unfunded liabilities—I mean, they're they're in the trillions, right? And so, what that basically means is these are promises that the government has made that it does not currently have the ability to pay. At the federal level, you talk about trust funds. At the state level, people have probably heard um, about unfunded pension liabilities, right? These public sector unions negotiate really generous contract, really generous retirement benefits uh, for public employees with the politicians that they help elect, right? In a state like Illinois or California, the unions are powerful they elect the politicians, they negotiate these promises for retirees, and then the politicians are long gone when uh, sort of those promises come due. So that's how in in unfunded benefits uh, and unfunded liabilities work. Um, Those things have to be reformed. One of the reasons that we get into that situation isn't just the promises, but it's also the promise of economic growth of those investments, right? The return on investment that those are going to get, which clearly is not ever going to keep up the rate that we've had the last 10 years Uh, of growth. And here's another thing I might point to, Jeff, uh, is uh, interest rates, right? The interest on our debt, as interest rates go up, it's going to get more and more and more expensive to borrow the money to pay for all these things. So that's another thing people maybe aren't keeping in mind because it hasn't been a huge issue the last few years with low rates. Um, But, you know, this is coming, it's coming fast and it's actually coming faster than it has been previously. so I think the urgency of things like the trust act responsible budget targets and as you mentioned the real budget uh, always have been important but are very quickly becoming even more important uh, and so that's why we're out there educating people about the urgency making sure lawmakers lawmakers understand uh, you know how important it is that they do this on in short order you know and Akash we keep adding t- every year
0: to the to the national debt our deficit um you know, adds to the debt every year. When was the last time? And I, I probably shouldn't put you on the spot, but I'll bet, you know, you're a smart guy. I bet, you know, the answer is when was the last time we had a surplus in the federal government?
1: Yeah, it was in the, it was in the nineties, I think right. it was in the, maybe the late to mid nineties. Um, obviously that was a very long time ago. Yeah. And since then we've just racked up and, and this is another really important point for your listeners, Jeff is we have racked up debt under presidents of both parties, Congress of both parties. Anybody who says Washington can't agree on anything has never looked at our federal spending. Right. That's the one thing they, you know, they love to do is, is spend our money. Um, neither side has had the courage to do anything about it in a very long time. There have been attempts here and there. 2011, the Republican Congress tried to tried to do something about it and made some concessions out of President Obama. Um, but I think the most important thing that we can do as Americans of Prosperity, which we've been doing, um and are always looking for allies to help us do this in the activist community and the press in congress um is to re you know sort of reconvene the urgency of doing something we can't allow members to lose their muscle memory out of political fear of the importance of doing something on federal spending
0: yeah so true um let me so on this real budget what can americans do right now to to try and urge congress to reform the current congressional budget process and get to a better one that gives more accountability to elected officials and, you know, so that voters can hold them accountable for, for the decisions they make. What can Americans do right now?
1: Yeah, I I would say three things, Jeff. The first is get educated on what the solutions are. So Americans for Prosperity released a, a blueprint to end budget brinksmanship. It's on our website, um again it's it's Americans for prosperity's agenda to end budget brinksmanship. And it has you know just a quick blurb on all these solutions: the real budget, the responsible budget targets, the trust act, things like that. So learn what good looks like. The second I would say is learn where things stand right now. I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what our government currently actually spends most of its money on. I think you know, poll after poll shows that people think we spend far too much on foreign aid, right? Where foreign aid is actually only 1% mm-hmm. of our entire federal budget. Now people may not like what we do with that foreign aid and that's a, that's a substantive debate to be had, but from a sheer dollars and cents standpoint, right. foreign aid is a drop in the bucket, right? Us funding National Public Radio or the National Endowment for the Arts, while you might, might not like that government does these things, they're a drop in the bucket. The reality is that the vast, vast, vast majority of federal spending and the drivers of our debt are those mandatory programs, that entitlement spending, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, Obamacare. And if we don't do something to reform them, people are going to get hurt when those programs have to be cut. The third thing I would point to, and I think this is maybe where the rubber meets the road, is make it a priority. If you engage with your member of Congress or or her office, you see them at town hall events, let them know that this is a priority for you because they are not going to make fixing our federal budget a priority until they hear that their voters are making it a priority. And so if they don't hear from you about this issue, they're not going to do anything. So that, that I would say, is kind of where the rubber meets the road as far as doing something about it and putting it into action.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, if we don't do something about it and we've kicked the can down the road year after year after year, and if we don't do something, I mean, eventually we are going to hit crisis mode. Several years ago in Europe, we saw countries uh, they called it austerity. Going through austerity measures, we saw Greece and other countries do that. I mean, ultimately, that will happen. You can't just have debt forever and never expect that somebody is going to pay that debt. So the best way to do it is to to manage that and get control of our debt and and draw it down. Because as you mentioned, it keeps causing or costing us more and more every single year in interest on the debt, and there's less and less for programs. Because we're just not managing this right,
1: yeah, that's exactly right, and, and we have an inflection point this year, right, this debt ceiling debate, and I'm sure everyone has seen headlines about this. Um, the debt ceiling is itself essentially like a, a signifier right It's important to raise the debt ceiling so we can uphold the full faith and credit of the United States, but it's an inflection point to extract concessions and to just stop you know swiping the credit card over and over and raise your credit card limit over and over. Um, Obviously, if that's the case, you need to make some reforms the next time it becomes necessary to raise the credit card limit. That's kind of where we're at right now with the debt ceiling. And so um, we're pushing hard for some of these reforms to become law along with that debt ceiling increase this year.
0: You know, as we uh, get a little bit closer to that, we'd love to have you come back and kind of talk about that. Uh, Obviously, we don't want to have just the, the debt ceiling raised with no concessions. Right, we do want to we do want to make sure that we're moving in the right direction uh, there. So we'd love to have you come back and maybe talk some more about that when we get a little bit closer
1: to that. Absolutely, would love to appreciate the opportunity.
0: Okay, Um, Akash Chogale, the vice president of Americans for Prosperity of Government Affairs, uh, appreciate you joining us. Thanks for your time today.
1: You got it. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, listen. Hey, you can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Um, a lot of people listen to this podcast on YouTube. In fact, we get, I mean, we just get tons of views on YouTube through that YouTube channel. Would love for you to follow us uh, on those. And again, go to AmericanPotential.com and you can, if you, if you have a story that you'd like us to tell, you can go to AmericanPotential.com. You can fill out the share our story section there and, uh, you know, we may be able to tell your story on this podcast. Thanks for joining us on American potential. Thank you for listening to American potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.